What's up, everybody? Thanks for listening to the Fatim and Friends podcast. I'm your host, Adam Tiller. I want to say thanks to everyone listening. As a reminder, please follow us on Instagram at FNFpod. Also follow our cartoon on Instagram at Beefcake and Butterball. Please share this podcast with a friend to help us reach new listeners. For all the content, go to adamtillercomedy.com. All right, let's get started with some reads from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by The Impossible Sandwich from Starbucks. The Impossible Sandwich is everything you love about a classic sausage breakfast sandwich, but now with plant-based sausage. In fact, this sandwich has shattered all concepts of reason surrounding sandwiches. Some have even called it a greater lifetime achievement than the vaccine and the slaughter of bin Laden. Now, some of you might be thinking that a meatless sausage breakfast sandwich has been entirely possible for a while now, and that bin Laden has nothing to do with a sandwich, but you don't know shit. I do. In fact, I tried the Impossible Sandwich on a recent road trip, and truthfully, I didn't even realize it was vegetarian until afterwards. And then I was just angry for eating something vegetarian. Look, believe whatever you want to believe about sandwiches. Just know that this one is entirely impossibly possible. This episode is also brought to you by educational comedy. I love all types of comedy, but there's one kind of comedy I know I'll never master. Educational comedy. Made popular by depressed high school teachers, educational comedy is unlike any other kind. That's because it exists at the intersection between laughter and learning. For instance, remember how your 10th grade chemistry teacher would always tell his favorite joke about covalent bonds? And even though it was met with silence and groans, he'd always follow with, Do you guys get it? It was a joke about science. A science joke. Next time you're ready to annoy the shit out of everyone around you, don't forget to try a low educational comedy. It's been a short ride, but man, it's been a crazy one. The shit we seen and overcame and all of it has made us some hell of a bunch of kids of stories for the ages of how the hell we got here. You can read it in the pages of receipts and tweets and poems that we left along the way. Every day is something new. I see the look on mama's face. I know this world is sick and it's twisted. The kids never listen. My prince in the system invents on a pistol. I never seen the music, but he pulled it out a couple times. And that was Travis Thompson with the intro music. My guest today was featured on the TV show Life Below Zero on National Geographic and has appeared on the Joe Rogan Experience. He's also kind of my uncle. I'm excited to welcome Glenn Villeneuve. And we got a little drop in action from uh, the Storytime OG himself, Tom Tiller. Hey, Adam. How you doing? Good, good. Thanks for coming on, Glenn. Hey, good to be here. So, um... I wanted to have you on today. I, I don't think I've ever, this is one of the first times we've really kind of formally met. I mean, growing up, I met you a couple times and stuff, but I wanted to, I wanted to tell you kind of a, a fun little anecdote before we get started. Uh, just uh, like growing up, I spent a lot of time in Vermont. I, I worked with my grandpa on, on building cabins up uh, in Northern Vermont and, 
I went deer hunting almost every year. So I, of my brothers, I spent probably the most amount of time in Vermont and, um, they like whenever I visited, we'd always be in the car quite a bit. It'd be like a couple hours driving from, you know, here to camp. And I, we'd always, my dad's a big storyteller. Uh, you probably know that my mom definitely don't knows that. Um, but, uh, I would always end up hearing a lot of stories growing up. And I heard this kind of legend of uncle Glenn, um, this, this uncle that like, from a very young age, like eighth grade or something like that, like teachers couldn't keep him in the classroom because he just would jump out the windows and just refuse to stay indoors. And, and if there's some exaggeration here, uh, it runs in the family, as you know, but like basically uh, it got to the point where this uncle Glenn couldn't be contained and, he started pursuing his interests on his own, whether it was rock climbing or aviation or geology and just kind of reading everything he could about it. And the last that I heard about the legend of Uncle Glenn was that he moved to Alaska, built a 10 by 10 cabin and lived in the woods. And this was probably 2000, 2005 that I heard this. And fast forward to 2012, I'm I'm working in Everett and I sit down, made a steak for myself, turn on the TV, and all of a sudden the narrator says, Glenn lives a subsistence lifestyle in rural Alaska. And I'm like, I have an uncle named Glenn that does that. And then the narrator goes, Glenn is originally from Vermont, but moved to northern Alaska in the late 90s. And I'm sitting there like, how many Glens are from northern Vermont that moved northern Alaska? And then the screen panned and it said Glenn Villeneuve. And I'm like, that's my uncle Glenn. Like I, and the reason why I tell this story is all, all throughout my life, this was, it didn't feel real. Okay. Like, like these stories about you, it, it was almost like, um, the, there's a 30 for 30 about Bo Jackson and how like he, he did all these crazy feats and stuff. And you were my Bo Jackson in real life. Like I, I, everything I heard about you didn't seem real. And that night I, I remember calling my cousin and being like, Glenn's on TV. What is this? It, it was crazy. So um, I thought you'd enjoy that story a little bit, but You've been on Life Below Zero. You did the Rogan podcast, as we talked about. Um, and I, I just sort of wanted to do a different style interview as to, like, the into the mind of Glenn. Um, sort of what what got you to where you're at, um, what inspired you, things like that. So um, when did you, like... If anything I said, by the way, in that story wasn't true, please please feel free to correct me. Uh, you got the outline pretty much right. Um, one thing, uh, just so everybody knows, you refer to me as Uncle Glenn, which I appreciate. It's more like, I think, a term of respect between cousins when they're different ages, but we're actually cousins. Yeah, yeah. So your dad and I are first cousins, so we're first cousins once removed. Yep. Um, yeah, I didn't. I didn't care much for school when I was a kid and uh, did my own thing. Ended it, up in Alaska eventually. That's all. 
that's the basic story. I, I figured that that cousin uncle thing was going to come up. Just we, we, at least for our family, like we, it all just started blending together. It was just a simplicity thing. <laughs> like we yeah. just, just call him, call him your uncle. And I mean, but yeah. Um, so when did you kind of at like what age, when did you decide that you, the traditional lifestyle wasn't for you? It wasn't really a decision. I just, I think really what it comes down to is I was just influenced by a lot of different traditions. <laughs> so, you know, I'm just a very open person. I'm very curious. I'm always exploring. So I just got a lot of ideas from a lot of different places that maybe weren't particularly conventional in terms of the, the time, the place, the people that I was born into right there in Underhill, Vermont, it seemed unconventional maybe in that context. But I think I just, I was absorbing all sorts of things. So it took me off in different directions. What were some of those things? Well, most of the ideas I was getting at a younger age were probably coming from reading. I read a lot when I was a kid. And so I didn't go to school a whole lot. The first time I dropped out of school, I was only in the fourth grade. But <laughs> right around that age, when I was 10 years old, was the first time I ever went to the University of Vermont Library. I had another cousin who was a student at UVM working there, and he knew that I liked to read and I liked libraries and whatnot. But I was, I used to go to the little one-room library in, in Underhill there where I grew up. And I went down to the university, and I was just amazed, like aisles and aisles of books. I remember him showing me around there as a 10-year-old, and I was too young to get a library card. But my maternal grandfather, he uh, used to go to the library there quite regularly too. So he used to bring me and take out books on his card. And I just got into reading a lot and I would just. Was that Richard? No, my maternal grandfather, Donald, um, Richard, your dad's uh, grandfather is my paternal. Okay. We're getting back into uh, that. He wasn't a library. Richard (laughs) used to have the Vermont statutes, you know, he had those all out on his desk. But other than that, I never saw him reading too many books. Uh, he used to like to read the law books. Yeah. Uh, but my other grandfather would read at the university. So he used to give me a ride down to Burlington and I'd stay there all day long at the library. And uh, it, this is before the internet. Okay. It's very so, strange that you couldn't be kept in school, but loved being in the library. It's a little, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, was it just a matter of like, it was taking you too long in classrooms to get to what you actually wanted to learn or like, well, I just had this self-directed personality. I, I like to study what I was interested in, and it wasn't necessarily the same thing as the curriculum at school. I think that so, might run in the family. <laughs> but, you know, this is before the Internet, so I didn't have a lot of – when I was 10 years old, I lived in a small world. I mean, I, I lived in a small town. It was pretty rural then. And, uh, you know, I grew up beside a, a sawmill and there were dairy farms around there. And uh, so the library was how you get your information then. What were you reading, though? Like you said, a uh, lot of different uh, ideas and, and thinking. Like what, what were some of the things that you were drawn to? Well, when I was that age, 
you know, I didn't really know what there was to know. So I, I can remember just browsing. I just start walking through the aisles and looking at books and, you know, exploring the, uh, the card catalog system, like all the different subjects and just getting familiar with what was out there. I mean, I used to like to just browse encyclopedias and everything. So, but I, I started getting all different ideas. I mean, one, one area that influenced me a lot in terms of moving to Alaska and the hunter gatherer lifestyle was reading anthropology, reading about different cultures and particularly hunter gatherer type cultures. And, but I, I studied, you know, superficially just about every academic subject you could think of i i'd just go through the stacks and i'd explore and i'd you know for a while i might have been reading about art history and then the next week i might have been reading psychology i was just interested in exploring everything and then there were as i got older of course certain things i focused on it's just <laughs> i i love you you talk about this like it's just so like everyone does this. <laughs> and no, I, it, I was the only 10-year-old I'd see there all day when I was walking around the library. And then the other place I spent a lot of time was out in the woods. You know, I, I grew up where I could walk right from my house to, you know, up this little hill, South Hill on the edge of town and used to start going up there when I was five, six years old. And I could see the highest mountain in Vermont was only five or six miles away. See that from the front yard there. And I used to just fantasize about getting up that mountain from the time I can remember. And uh, finally got up the top of Mount Mansfield when I was nine years old and I started just hiking all the time. And eventually, you know, when I was a teen, early teenager, I hiked the length of Vermont on the long trail. So I spent a lot of time in the woods. I spent a lot of time at the library and I spent a lot of time talking to people. There were actually a lot of interesting people around. I was really fortunate. I grew up in, you know, a, a large extended family and, most all of my relatives lived very close by. So I was within a mile of all four of my grandparents lived, you know, right there. And I could just ride my bike over to their house or drive the go-kart over there when I got a go-kart. And so there were a lot of interesting people around neighbors. I used to stop and spend a lot of time talking with certain people and just listening to their stories and learning what I could from them. Did you guys spend time together at that age much or, not, you know, family get togethers, but I was quite a bit older than Glenn. Yeah. You must be seven or eight years older than me, Tom. Yeah. But I, I remember seeing you at, at Grammy and Grampy's holidays, you know, Christmas every year and things like that. You probably spent more time with my half sisters, Debbie and Tammy, who are a little older. But what was your sense of Glenn at that age, dad? <laughs> Like, I liked Glenn a lot. I mean, he was, uh, like you said, curious, you know. He's always interested in something new. And I, I think one of the things we both love is to learn. Uh, you know, maybe I learn more in a traditional academic kind of way. And Glenn learned more experientially. But uh, we both have a wide variety of interests, a lot of them common. Uh I love the outdoors. I'm not going to move to rural Alaska, but I mean, I do love the outdoors. I love flying. Glenn loves flying. Uh, Glenn loves to learn. I love to learn. We have a lot of similar characteristics uh, in the way we uh, approach life. And then some obvious differences. If somebody's climbing mountains at nine years old, that's got to be an interesting personality to come across. Heard plenty of Glenn's stories, you know, (laughs) 
third, fourth grade, didn't want to go to school. I don't know why that is, you know, uh, and that sort of thing. I remember when he was a little kid, a real little kid, he was about one or something like that. Six months, one, I was over at Ronald's house, Ronald and Ann's house. Glenn was there and he bit me, right? <laughs> Just came right up to me and bit me. And I'm like, like, what the hell is it with this kid, right? I'm like, you know, how old are you now, Glenn? I have 51. 51. So I'm 59. So eight years. So I was, I was probably nine. He was, you know, say six months or a year. Came right up and bit me. I said, what the hell is it with this? You know, it's like a dog going over to somebody's house, have the dog bite you. And, uh, and he says, oh, he just does that all the time. And I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so he was unique, even from the time he was a real little kid. I mean, I remember Glenn when he was, when he's born. I remember when Glenn was born. And he was always a very unique person in the way he, the questions he would ask, the things he would uh, talk about, his experiences, how he approached school, everything about him was was unique, you know, and uh, and I always enjoyed that. So, and Tom, what I remember of you, like you say, we didn't spend a lot of time playing together just because of the age difference. I remember seeing you at these family gatherings, but I'd hear stories about you, and my impression of you when I was a kid was that you were very interesting and very ambitious. Um, I remember you did really well in high school. I remember when I was probably 10 years old, you got into MIT and uh, I, I, you know, hear about you studying there. I remember when you were working at GE as an engineer and then when you went on to get into management um, and we did start to get together a few times there when we were older. I remember really well uh, going down to Boston and spending a few days down there with you and you taking me to class when you were at Harvard Business School. And I found that just fascinating. That was really interesting. Yeah, we got a section on stories we're going to touch on that. I think my dad's got a couple of good stories from when you visited him at Harvard, uh, which is another interesting thing of just, you know, dropping in and studying at Harvard temporarily uh, in the, the legend of Glenn. But um, I wanted to kind of go back to just this kind of non-traditional thinking thing. And how did, um, see, you were studying a lot you had a lot of ideas you'd spent some time out in the woods when when did alaska like was was that the plan did you just kind of end up there like how how did you go from you know being studying this stuff to actually kind of living this hunter gatherer lifestyle well that was actually quite a bit later I didn't really decide to move to Alaska to live until I was in my late 20s. It was um, 97 is when I first decided, hey, that's exactly what I'm going to do is move up to Alaska. I was interested in Alaska. I was interested in a lot of things before that. I remember seeing Alaska from the air flying over it, you know, on an international flight headed to Asia one time. And I was really impressed with the mountains down there, you know, that I was looking at going by. But the idea of actually moving to Alaska to live as a hunter gatherer, which, um, came to me, um, one summer that was, that was in 97, I believe it was. Yeah. 97. I was living in a teepee in the woods in Vermont that summer when I got that idea. And what, how did you end up in a teepee in the woods? <laughs> uh, change of pace. I, I had spent uh, <laughs> a lot of time in my mid twenties traveling a lot all over the world and I'd spend time in big cities, um, but I, you know, I still 
like nature and had that background of having spent a lot of time in the woods growing up and as a teenager. So after this period of travel, I, I remember um, it was just kind of like settling down. You know, I, I had my girlfriend that I had I'd met in New York City with me and uh, we were going to spend the summer in the United States. I decided, hey, let's go live in the woods in this at this really cool place I had found. And it was like 5,000 acres of undeveloped land around a reservoir. And uh, it was about as remote as you could get in Vermont. And I'd gone there canoeing a few times before. And I thought, wow, it would be great just to, to set up this teepee out there in the woods and live in the woods this summer as much as we could. So we did that. How long did she last? Um, about 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> And she's the opera singer, right? Yeah, she was She was a student still when I first met her. I met her in Soho in Manhattan. And uh, that was uh, just, you know, the year or so before we lived in that team. It was in 96 that we met. She was an opera singer. And she was from Berlin. She grew up in East Germany. So I spent some time, quite a bit of time in Berlin for a couple of years there in the beginning. How were Go you getting around, like... You were everywhere. <laughs> how did you, yeah, I how'd you do this? I was, when I was a little kid, one of my favorite toys was the globe. When I, I mean, I'm talking like when I was six years old, I used to play with the globe and study the globe and stare at the globe. And I used to want to travel and see other places. And um, when I was a teenager, it seemed inaccessible financially and just seemed like a big deal to travel all around the world. But then um, when I was in my, early twenties, I figured out how I could do that with, um, this, um, this job of being an international courier that, um, was something that I, I remember finding a book on it just by chance. Like I came across this book on, you know, travel the world for free or something. And, um, that, that probably wasn't my very first trip overseas, but after the first time I went to Europe was, was probably a regular flight. Yeah. I actually remember that now it's coming back to me. I remember I, I saw something on TV and it was like Virgin Atlantic. You can fly to London for $250. I was like, wow, you can get there for only $250. I had that much money. And I jumped on a plane and went to London. And uh, that was the first time I'd ever, you know, left the U S or Canada. And uh, then I found out about courier, flights and i started traveling all over the place for a few years there and were you just I like visited about 25 countries by the time i was you know in my late 20s i'd been to five continents and spent quite a bit of time in, in some places i'd go to asia sometimes for a month or six weeks with just a little backpack and just kind of disappear into wherever go up into northern thailand or laos or vietnam different places there's and not I was a lot. always meeting people. It was it was it was a very social thing for me. So I would go. It could be anywhere. It could be New York City, or it could be you know the Golden Triangle. And somehow I'd always bump into interesting people that would invite me to live with them. So I'd end up usually staying with people wherever <laughs> I went. Like you guys when I showed up in Louisville or whatever down in Boston when you were at Harvard. And uh, I met so many fascinating people. So to me that was my college education, you know, those were the years in my early twenties when some people would have been studying in college. I was studying in people's homes around the world, kind of. <laughs> what? Okay. So for 
what was the job? Like, did you just hand off documents and then go do what you wanted to do? Basically, yes. <laughs> I, I usually would. It was I was a freelance courier, so the deal was it was basically express mail in most cases. That you know, if you want to send something overnight, I don't know how it works now. This is quite a long time ago, but if you were in New York and you wanted to get a document to Singapore the next morning, the only way they could really do that was to check it on his passenger baggage because of customs. Um, it, it would facilitate things if it was checked on his passenger baggage. So a lot of these companies were, you know, big mainstream companies like DHL, for example, is one that I remember carrying things for. Um, and they would just just check stuff on his passenger baggage. They had to have a passenger on the plane. It was It was really easy. Um, didn't have much to do. They'd have somebody meet me at the airport on each end with whatever had to go. And a lot of times I wouldn't even touch it. I mean, sometimes there'd be so much stuff going somewhere that they'd have a truck that would actually drive up to the plane. I can remember seeing like the DHL truck driving up to the plane and loading my baggage <laughs> onto the plane. <laughs> I didn't even touch it or see it. Then I'd show up in some place like Copenhagen and there'd be some other guy there picking it all up off the carousel. So it was, they just needed, they just needed a passenger. Okay. Huh. That so you I mean it was kind of like a loophole like for that time, right? Cuz nowadays like that that should be that would what would that be qualified just airmail? Uh, nowadays I think they use uh, DocuSign, electronic uh <laughs> Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh in those days, yeah, it it was something that was going on. I I have no idea to tell you the truth. I haven't looked into it. I have no idea if there's anything like that happening today but at that time um it, it helped to send stuff as passenger baggage if you wanted to get it through customs faster That's for crazy. a lot of locations so, so and the other thing was that um because i was very flexible and i could go at the last minute and i was interested in going just about anywhere so that was very you know that put me in a, a position they didn't have a lot of people like that necessarily that could just um get a call and hey can you fly over to uh London, you know, in about three hours. And what I would do too, is I had friends in New York city. So I'd stay a lot of times in New York city. And that way I could be at the airport really quickly and go wherever they needed somebody to go. That's awesome. And then typically I'd have an arrangement where once I got there, I could do whatever I want. I could stay as long as I wanted. I'd get a return ticket, but I could use it whenever I wanted to come back. So I might, I might fly over to Bangkok, take six weeks and just go around Southeast Asia during that time, for example. For a guy like in his 20s, that sounds pretty miserable. I can't imagine. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine doing that. So you went, you, you traveled the world. And one thing I want to highlight too is, I mean, nowadays with the internet, you've touched on this, like it's so different, but the kind of the tools that you were looking at, I mean, just going through the card catalog, going into the library and then having a physical globe and just like spinning it. And I mean, it's, it seems like such a novel concept now, but like, you know, that's what you had at your disposal at that age, which I, I really like. And it's crazy to me that you literally traveled the world starting from like an idea in this library somewhere. I mean, it's, it's pretty cool, but how did, how did you end up going from traveling the world to the Brooks range? Like what was the, the process there? Well, that summer that we were living in the teepee, um, 
I can remember seeing contrails going over and thinking, hey, I, I just have no desire to fly anywhere. I have no desire. I've seen enough of the world for right now. I'd, I was really into the local scene right there in the woods again. It was kind of, you know, like when I was a younger child and I used to spend more time in the woods, I was kind of getting back to nature. And um, I wasn't able to stay there continuously all that summer, but as much as possible, I'd spend, you know, a week or two or three weeks at the teepee and looking around. I had really no hunting experience when I grew up. I had a few uncles that hunted and I remember them taking me deer hunting sometimes, but we never got anything when I was with them. I never actually killed a big animal. Or that runs in the them. family too, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> we, we went many times and did not get anything besides a beer buzz. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the way it worked. Um, but yeah, I didn't have any hunting experience. So I'd spent a lot of time in the woods, but it was always recreational. You know, it was always, well, I'm going to go hiking and, you know, you got your backpack and your stuff and you went hiking and it was kind of like taking a vacation. But the idea that I got uh, that summer living in the teepee was that I would actually like to learn to live like this. Like how I, I was just thinking, how could you actually live like this? Cause I was having so much fun. I just, the whole experience of waking up every morning out there in the woods by the water of this lake and seeing the fog coming up and I was just in heaven and I thought, wouldn't it be amazing if you could just live like this? And so I started thinking more about hunter gatherers and how they used to live like that, really immersed in nature. And I was reading more and more anthropology and started getting this idea, like maybe you could actually still do that. Maybe you could actually be a hunter gatherer in the 20th century. It was still the 20th century then. <laughs> and um, reading about it, I came to the conclusion that if you could do it, probably the best bet would be in Alaska. You obviously that? need a lot of space. Okay. You need a lot of game. Um, I didn't think that I could survive that way in Vermont where there's like a two week deer season and you can get one little deer that, you know, you'd eat up in no time. But I thought, wow, maybe in Alaska, you could still do that. Um, I did a lot of research on it. I, I remember um, actually writing to the fish and game departments all over Canada, like the Northwest Territories and the Yukon Territory and, and to Alaska and, and getting the hunting regulations. They would send them, you know, no internet still. I didn't have the internet then. This was 97. I guess there was an internet, but I didn't have it. And uh, reading these game regulations, I realized that just from a legal perspective too, being a U.S. citizen, Canada, it wasn't going to work. Um, in Alaska, I remember reading that, you know, in some areas you could take 10 caribou a year, you could get a moose every month. And in Vermont, you had to play a lottery and you might be able to hunt a moose or you might not, you know. Um, it just seemed like there was still the opportunity here that you might actually be able to do that. I, I'm just sort of at a loss of words a little bit. I didn't really think about the, that from a um, regulation standpoint, but it makes a lot of sense. So it was, Alaska was basically just from like a legal and practical standpoint, the only place that you were going to be able to like live off the land legally. From yes, a, I probably, 
would have ended up in Canada if it hadn't been for the legality of it. Because actually, I had already made one trip into a very remote region in northern Canada the summer before in 96. Um, Sylvia and I went up to a place in northern Quebec called Cania Pisco, which it took days to drive there. That Hydro-Quebec constructed this series of dams across northern Quebec, and they had this road built for that purpose, just a gravel road that the gravel portion of it was 666 kilometers long. And uh, <laughs> we drove first for a couple days to the end of the paved roads. And then we drove this gravel road for another day or two and got to the very end, as far as you can drive in Northern Quebec. And we had a canoe on the roof of this little car and parked the car by the road and uh, started canoeing. And that must have been a weird feeling when you got to the end of the road after driving. (laughs) And it was a. Did it just stop or? Yes, it stopped. It it stops at this huge reservoir, the Cania Pisco Reservoir. There's hardly anybody there. You you see these gravel dikes that just go for miles and miles. They basically rerouted entire rivers that used to flow north. Um, they're now flowing west into James Bay, and then they have these giant dams, and they sell electricity all the way down to New England. So it's a huge industrial project. But once it got built, it took almost nobody to maintain it. You, you could drive for an hour and not meet another car. You'd see a, a dam once in a while. You know, you drive for a couple hours, and you come to this giant dam, and there'd be maybe a handful of people working there. You could stop there. I, I, we pulled in and, and we're say, Hey, how's it going? You know? And they're like, wow, where'd you come from? They see the Vermont license plate. And it was like, wow, you don't get many people like you up here, a little canoe on top of the car, but it was a, a environment I'd never been in before. There were also native camps. Once in a while you'd come to a, a camp of the Cree people and they'd have a few teepees set up. That's where I got the idea to build a teepee the following summer. Huh. And we met some of these people when we came out of the woods um, and uh, went to some of the villages. Those were a long way from the end of the road, but there were, you know, after, when you drove back down, when you got back to um, James Bay, there were villages along James Bay and we stopped there and met some really interesting people. Um, in the Brooks Range, you might've seen on Life Below Zero, a little sod house yeah. that I constructed. Actually, that's modeled after a sod house that Sylvia and I stayed in for a few days at a, a village on James Bay called Chisasabi. Somebody there gave us this little sod house to stay in while we were there. They said, hey, if you repair the sod on it, you know, it hasn't been kept up for the last couple of years, you can stay in there. We learned how to put the spruce bough floor down from these native people there in Chisasabi. And um, so I started getting ideas from people up there. But then the next summer when I was living in the teepee, I realized that I couldn't legally operate in Northern Quebec. So it would have been a really marginal existence. The native people were very friendly. They were always, you know, saying, Oh, did you, you know, do any hunting? And I said, Oh, you can't legally, I can't legally hunt. Ah, oh, don't worry about it. You know, everybody's got to eat, <laughs> but, uh, to, to, you know, I had longer range vision of having a family and actually getting established. That wasn't the place to do it. So, I ended up making five different trips into Northern Quebec before I moved to Alaska. It was very educational, but just for legal reasons, I couldn't really settle down there. Mm -hmm. 
And like, how did you end up like, so when was the first time that you went to Alaska? I guess. 99. Okay. And then how did you pick the Brooks range? Like, is it, was it sort of just like go wherever you want to go? Or like, did you have to get that particular plot or what? Well, is this where it wasn't that simple? It was a big process from the time I decided in 97 that I wanted to move to Alaska. And I actually decided just reading about it that summer that I wanted to move to the Brooks range till the time I actually drove up the hall road here that goes to the Arctic ocean. The only road across the Brooks range parked my van and walked into the lake that you've seen me living at. It took me seven years from 97 until 2004 was the summer that I actually walked out there for the first time. But, um, during that time, I did other things. It all kind of fed into it, but I got into aviation. I got my pilot license, and then I decided to go on. I ended up getting an airline transport pilot license. That took quite a bit of time. You have to fly 1,500 hours to get that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, but the first, the first step uh, in, in getting to Alaska was to get my pilot license. I decided that when I was up in Canada that I was going to get my pilot license because uh, on one trip to Northern Canada, uh, we were canoeing for six weeks and we would see these small little bush planes once in a while fly over little float planes. And I started thinking that you know, that would be a good direction to go in terms of career possibilities in Alaska someday, like to get my pilot license. Actually, the first call I made after that trip of being gone for six weeks, and this is before satellite phone. I didn't have a satellite phone. We didn't have a radio. No, no communications at all for six weeks. Just the two of us. Didn't see another human on the ground. So we get back to this road, and um, they would have these little telephone booths. You you drive down the road for an hour, and then you'd come to a telephone booth beside the road. Emergency phone. So. <laughs> um, no cell phones or anything. So I step into the first little telephone booth in the middle of the wilderness that I came to and called up Vermont to let my family know I was still alive. And my brother Neil answered the phone and he said, Hey, Glenn, uh, I decided uh, I'm going to quit doing the work I'm doing. And I want to get into being a pilot. I'm starting this ground school next week. Do you want to do it with me? I said, yeah, that's, I was just thinking about it. Neil. <laughs> so Drove back down to Vermont, and that was in 98. That was my second trip up into northern Quebec and and, uh, started taking ground school. And over that winter, 98, 99, got my private pilot license. And and shortly after I got my private pilot license in the spring of 99, jumped into a Cessna 172 and flew to Alaska. So that was the first time I actually got to Alaska on the ground. Dad, do you have any questions so far? Just because you, you know, are flying quite a bit now, and this is up your wheelhouse. Yeah, I'm. I'm way behind him in terms of. Uh, I started much later in life than he did, but uh, we both share a love of aviation. You still fly, right, Glenn? Yeah, I took 15 years off, and then uh, just a couple of years ago, I got back into it. Yeah, how many hours total? Hours you got? Uh, I think I've got about. 1850 hours now so most of it you had when you built up the time before because you were you had a float plane business or something up in uh fairbanks didn't you at some some point didn't you have a a plane with floats because you came out to minnesota i think i remember yeah but i didn't actually get a business going i i was headed in that direction 
And it basically turned what I thought was going to facilitate the lifestyle that I wanted to live up here. Actually, I realized was incompatible with it. You know, to actually operate an air taxi service, I would have had to live in town. It would have been a full-time job to pay fixed costs that you couldn't get out of. I mean, the insurance was very expensive. And the amount I would have had to fly, I realized there's no way I'm going to actually be living out in the bush and doing that at the same time. So I gave up flying entirely in order to live in the wilderness. I basically made that choice that I was going to give up flying and sold that airplane in 2004 and walked out there to the lake and started living. So I didn't fly from actually the, the fall of 2003 until 2018. I, I didn't fly for 15 years. And then after, you know, several years making television on LBZ and my financial situation had changed. I thought, hey, I could afford to get back into flying now and I could actually just, you know, fly on my own. I wouldn't have to generate income with the airplane. So I bought another airplane in 2018, brought it up here. But most of my flying, most of my time was done years and years ago. I've probably only flown 150 or 200 hours uh, since I started flying again. Neat. Neat. How'd you ever find that place in the Brooks Range? That, that place in the lake. I mean, where, where'd that come from? That was a, a challenge to find a place. Once I got here, I realized that, hey, you actually couldn't just go anywhere and uh, settle Was down. it a realtor? Did you find a listing in a realtor and you went <laughs> no, out? No, I never owned it. <laughs> I, I actually did um, really spend a lot of time uh, exploring options to buy a parcel of remote land in Alaska. And... There actually are some listings, but most of the state, as you know, uh, is public land. So right. uh, if you want to own a piece of land in a remote part of Alaska, it can be difficult to find. And I put just huge amounts of time into searching. Um, and eventually I did buy some land, not the place that, that I've lived at, but I do own some remote land in Alaska. But um, with the airplane in the first couple of years that I was in Alaska, I traveled around the northern part of the state a lot, got to know all the people that lived in, in northern Alaska, you know, remotely outside of the villages. There aren't that many people. <laughs> and I, I found them, though, and, you know, would, would talk to them about their situations, about the land, the, the, the legal status of land. I studied a lot and I started um, researching a lot. There, there are a lot of native allotments, there are quite a few native allotments where um, the government had given land to native people that they now have a right to sell. So I explored buying land from native people. And um, basically, I got to know the, the real estate situation in northern Alaska really well, <laughs> really, really well. And um, I realized, though, that it probably wasn't going to work out in the short term for me to own the land that I lived on. It was also very expensive. Um, for me at that really? time, it would have been unaffordable to buy uh, the few pieces of land that I actually found that, that I might have been able legally to have obtained. I mean, we're talking like hundreds of thousands of dollars for a small piece of land in the middle of nowhere with no access in some cases. I remember one piece of land I found that the, it was a native allotment. The owner wanted $320,000 for it. It was in the middle of nowhere. It was mostly a bog. And... Uh, <laughs> But you so just landed huge. on that lake one day and just pulled the plane up and said, okay, this is the spot and built the cabin. Um, it was by chance. It was in August. It was, which is when it starts to get dark at night again. And I was visiting 
a small village of about 15 people where I had befriended someone who was giving me a lot of information. Uh, he, he had been a lifelong resident of Alaska, hunter, trapper, fascinating person, very intelligent man who had tons of knowledge. And I, I would stop in this little village of 15 people and talk to him once in a while. It was getting toward evening and he asked me where I was going to spend the night. I said, I'm just going to jump in the plane and find a lake to camp on. And he suggested a lake on the map, on the chart that he had spent time as a little kid at. So I take off and head over there. By the time I got there, it was just starting to get dark. And I started descending into the lake and lo and behold, there was an airplane parked on it, which is was surprising because there are not that wow. many not that many people around up there this is in the middle of nowhere it was you know 50 miles off the hall road and um i see this this cessna 185 is parked at a beach on the edge of the lake and i thought oh well i'm not going to spoil their party they're out they came all the way out here to be alone so i started climbing back up and there's big mountains all around six thousand foot seven thousand foot mountains in that area I had to find a place to land because it's getting dark. So I, I just went over this first ridge of mountains. And on the other side, there was this valley. And I see a little lake down in there. And uh, I, I was running out of time. So I just took that, that lake to land because once it gets dark, I mean, you, you don't want to be landing on the water out there. There's no lights and it could be very dangerous. So, so just... I landed on this lake, pulled up to a little beach, spent the night there beside the airplane, camped out, got up in the morning, started looking around. And I thought, wow, this is a really interesting place. And um, I think the first time there, I just spent one night. But of all the places I'd been in the Brooks Range, that place had a particular appeal to me. It just seemed like it had a lot of things going for it. So I, I went back there several times. And then later that summer in 2000 is when I started building my camp there. It was public land. It was state land. Um, and I inquired with the authorities about the legality of operating out there. And basically, there were some possibilities to get a permit. But Who the hell's going to know? Hmm? Who the hell's going to know, right? Oh, I told them. I, I, I mean... <laughs> We got something out here called the Bush Telegraph. So even though you think you're in the middle of nowhere, I mean, if you start setting down, you know, putting down roots, building a cabin, things like that, people are going to find out. Uh, people are going to find out eventually, and everybody's going to hear about it because word travels. There's so, not that much to talk about, too, I'm sure. <laughs> like, I mean, I, I, I went into DNR here in, in Fairbanks, and I said, hey, I want to go trapping out here at this lake. I want to build a little cabin. and. I had researched the law, so I knew that they had the opportunity, if they wanted to, to give me a permit, but they didn't have the obligation to give me a permit, and they didn't want to give me a permit. But they basically told me they didn't want to give me a permit at that time because they said a lot of people want to do this. You know, they want to go live off the land, and, you know, basically nobody really does it. They go out, and they build some cabin and abandon it, and so we're not going to give you a permit, but they basically told me that um, if I wanted to go out there and an experiment, you know, nobody was going to do anything about it at that time. Basically there was a law against it, but it was very loosely enforced at that time. So what so I just started, uh, I started small. I started with a teepee that summer. And then um, over the years, I, you know, I built that little, I upgraded to that little plywood shack that you've seen and uh, <laughs> built a little sod house eventually. And so, 
What was appealing about, like you said that you got there and it was an appealing area. And I've, I've watched the show a fair amount because I'm an excellent researcher and I've been kind of bedridden this week and watching a lot of TV, but uh, um, I like there weren't, there were several times in the show where you were talking about um, energy conservation for yourself, where like when you go and get resources, you have to really weigh the pros and cons of, you know, if I'm going to get this fish, how many calories am I burning to get, you know, whatever substance I'm getting from this fish. Like it seemed like that area was not great in terms of um, resources for you. Like, what what was appealing or am i wrong in saying that or well the the country is it's hung, hungry country up here it's sparsely populated by game that there are large numbers of caribou in the arctic but they're concentrated in herds they they're migratory um you know you can you can go for months and not see anything and then all of a sudden it's like the serengeti plain when they show up that's just that just goes with the territory but what I was looking for was a place where I could operate on foot or with just a canoe that I paddled. And that's actually uh, difficult. Most people uh, that are living remotely in Alaska today, they have more motorized transport. They'll have motorboats, they'll have four wheelers, snow machines and whatnot, because they're long distances that you need to cover in order to find enough to eat, in order to get the resources you're looking for. What I thought I could do at that lake was get what I needed on foot just because of the fact that it was good moose for that country. It was pretty good moose habitat. There's some places you'd go where you'd never find a moose, but there was a lot of sign of moose there. Um, and I thought, Hey, I could probably get a moose up here in the fall. Um, also, you know, some places you'll never see caribou, but the caribou had started returning to that area uh, by that time. There were decades where there were no caribou over there. But the first spring, um, I noticed that caribou were migrating through that area when I was flying around. Large herds of caribou, thousands and thousands of caribou came through there. And there were also sheep on the mountains right around the lake. It wasn't ideal sheep hunting, but there was the possibility to hunt sheep there within five miles or so of the lake. So I could potentially walk there where the sheep were and there were also fish in the lake not the best fish you know some some lakes would have been better bigger lakes or places that were connected to bigger river systems would have had salmon or more fish but there were some fish in the lake that i could get to it just there was wood there there are a lot of air it's close to tree line so there are a lot of places where there's no fuel for fire you're just on tundra and it'd be very difficult existence mm -hmm. but there was spruce forest around the lake and uh, did, you said that you didn't have a lot of hunting experience when you were in the TP in, in Vermont. And then it was like seven years, you said, until you ended up at the Brooks Range. Like, did, what kind of preparation did you do or was it you got there and figured it out? Well, I did some small game hunting on these trips up to northern Quebec, you know, hunting spruce, grouse, snowshoe hare. That, the biggest thing I ever killed was a snowshoe hare when I, when I actually walked out to live at the lake. That's great. Um, <laughs> and yeah. you were, you were planning on just all, did you have store-bought food or like, were you planning on figuring out fall, yourself? In the fall of 2003, when I still had the airplane, I flew out some supplies. I built that little shack that 
stayed there until just a couple of years ago. And I had a few steel barrels, 55 gallon steel barrels. And I put supplies in them. I put, you know, ammunition, some knives, basic things that I needed. I left there and I had some food there, really basic food, like a bag of oats, bag of flour, bag of powdered milk. I left a few things like that. My goal was to get by with as little store-bought food as possible. So I didn't go overboard, but I left enough stuff to get me started. I didn't want to walk out into the wild and starve to death. So how did it go out there? hmm? How did it go? (laughs) Is that, that's a Uh, decent gamble to just be living off of powdered milk and oats for like that, that gets old pretty quick. I would think. Um, I didn't mind the the hardship of that. I liked the challenge of it. That's why I, I did it that way. I I actually cut it really close, but I thought it'd be okay. I left enough food that I thought if I get out there in July, I'll make I'll I can make it with fish in the lake, some small game that I could get during the summer, and this store bought food until September, when I'll have the chance to get a moose when it gets cold enough to get a moose. So I, I, you know, I'm pretty thorough in my planning and I had this, this idea um, that I'd have enough to make it till September, but I did have to get a moose in September or I was going to have a big problem. And the biggest thing I'd ever kill was a snowshoe hare. So there was that, Uh, that kept it exciting. That kept it interesting. What did you have for firearms? I had a 30 six, which it's the, the, the one, centerfire rifle that I've ever killed an animal with in my life. And I've used it for everything, uh, you know, all big game, um, caribou, sheep, grizzly bear, moose. But at that point I'd only shot targets with it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I didn't realize that you, I mean, that's a gamble to go out there and like, I mean, how hungry did you get? I got pretty hungry. Because I had calculated it so well that my store-bought food would run out by September that when I started moose hunting, I had one bag of flour left. And I can remember getting down to the very end. I remember the last bread I cooked. <laughs> when I would, and I had some cornmeal. And the last one, I made cornmeal, a mix of the, the cornmeal and the flour. I made this cornbread. And I had my cornbread. And the last batch I made when I ran out of, of the, there was, there was this little, I think I had maybe like two or three pounds of flour left, but I went and I miscalculated the salt and I put too much salt in this last bread I made. (laughs) And so I go out moose hunting. All I had was fish that I caught and bread. And this last batch was like, it had four times the salt it was supposed to have. I forgot. I, I, I put a teaspoon instead of a quarter teaspoon per cup or something like that, <laughs> per cup of flour. And so I was eating this terrible salty bread. It was like Gatorade bread. Say again? It was like Gatorade bread. You get all your electrolytes there. Oh, yeah. I got too many electrolytes. <laughs> so, But it was um, a little bit discouraging because I didn't know that much about moose then and uh, I had no idea how to call moose I started experimenting and I had no luck at all I saw some of that on the show there was one scene where you were kind of screaming at the moose which was pretty interesting to see Um, oh I you probably mean the caribou on the lake yeah 
when I was yelling at the caribou. Yeah. That's a whole different technique, echo chasing. But that was a uh, fun thing to show all my friends and stuff. I was like, this is my uncle Glenn. <laughs> and it was just you screaming at a bunch of animals in the woods. And <laughs> it was yeah. cool though. When, I'll, I'll get into that. I'll explain that. But when you're hunting a moose, you don't yell at them in that way, but a very common technique. And the way I've gotten all the moose I've ever killed, except the first one is to call them in by imitating another moose. But at that time I didn't know how to do that. I had no idea. And I was trying, I, I remember finding some caribou antlers that were shed on the ground and I click them together and maybe a moose will come. Didn't. And, uh, you know, there are not a lot of moose there. There are moose use the area, but, um, because the, there's so much less vegetation there than there is further South, there's less for them to eat. They, they need a much bigger territory. So you have far fewer moose. I mean, you, you can walk around that Lake. It's about three, four mile walk. Um, and you might not see a single fresh moose track, you know, even if it's a condition where you would notice them like a, a light snow, you, you can walk around the whole Lake and there might not be a single moose there that day. There might not be a, a moose um, in that Valley sometimes. Uh, so I'm walking around looking for moose. It's not going too well. It took, it took a long time, day after day. And when I did see moose, I didn't have any luck getting a shot at him. I didn't have any luck getting close at first. So it was getting discouraging and legally I can only hunt bulls, but it got to the point where, okay, I'm going to get any moose I can get. If I see a little calf moose today, I'm going to shoot it <laughs> because I'm on my last bread here. <laughs> and uh how were you feeling when you were like just eating bread like i mean that's not like for the amount you're moving around and and hunting and i mean it's not much in terms of nutrition yeah i'd stop and pick berries too at that time of year there's a lot of cranberries growing and i'd eat cranberries but you had to have gotten pretty thin right if you're not eating any kind of fat or, or protein yeah, I didn't lose a lot of weight that fall. There'd been other times after that when things went wrong that I actually got very thin. There was one year that I I did I was literally starving, but that fall I was doing okay. I mean, I caught a lot of fish and you know, there was I remember shooting some ducks also. Um I had a 22 with me and I remember shooting some ducks with a 22 one day. Um but eventually it had snowed a little bit in September. It starts snowing and it's getting real cold. The lake freezes up sometimes at the end of September. So uh, one day I was out and I think it was my 10th day looking for a moose and I'd seen a few moose, but I just couldn't get anywhere near close enough to them to take off. It's trying to sneak up on them rather than call them to me. Most of the time I just try to sneak through the bushes and you'd make noise and moose take off. Also, I had to get really close because I only had open sites and experimenting with targets. I, I realized like, gosh, Gwen, you better get really close to this moose. I actually had in my head that I'm not going to take a shot unless I'm 75 yards from the moose. I probably, you know, I probably, I, I might not get a really good shot because my vision is not that great. And with the open sites, it didn't work too well. I had had a plan. I was, I had a scope with me. The problem was I'd made a mistake and I'd forgot. I was going to, I carried, when I walked out there, I carried my rifle with me. So I had just the open sights on it. I had left in one of these barrels, the scope. And I thought that the, the rings to attach it and everything was there. It wasn't, I couldn't attach the scope to my gun. So I ended up using the open sights. But anyway, I'm, uh, after, after quite a few days of hunting a moose, I finally was out there one morning and 
walking around the lake, probably a half a mile or so from my camp, I came on some fresh moose tracks in this snow that had fallen, maybe about an inch of snow. And it was snowing lightly at the time. And I started just tracking this moose, which was something that I, I really hadn't done before either, tracking a moose. And usually, uh, now that I have a lot more experience hunting moose, usually that doesn't work out too well. I have one other time tracked a moose and caught up with it, but a moose just walking, I mean, they're probably going six miles an hour or so, and they move a lot. So um, it's usually not the best strategy, but I was tracking this moose for quite a little ways, you know, maybe a half a mile, I followed the tracks and I came into an area, I was in a spruce forest, small spruce trees, trees up there aren't big, you know, they're like this big around. But I came into this opening where it was tundra and there's the moose, it's a young bull moose and it's probably within 75 yards or so of me standing right there looking back at me. It heard me following its tracks and it had just stopped and it was turned back looking at me and I picked up that gun and bang, I shot it. You didn't call it at all? No, it was close enough. Okay. Shot it, and um, it wasn't the best shot. I hit the spine, though, and, and it, it was uh, – the back legs collapsed. It was it was paralyzed. I had to shoot it again. I actually ended up shooting that moose three times. It was all – you know, it was pretty exciting. I was all pumped up. My heart was racing. Wow, I'm shooting a moose. It went down, but it was No more cornbread. <laughs> It could still stand on its front legs, you know, and I was bang, I shoot it again. And I walked up and it still wasn't completely dead. And I shot it a third time. And the days uh, were starting to get a little shorter and it was snowing. And um, I realized once I got up to the moose and it was laying there on the ground that I was about 600 yards from the water and the moose, you know, it weighed definitely over a thousand pounds. Um, and it started to settle in that I had a pretty big job in front of me. <laughs> you know, I had, I had my little knife, I had a backpack, I had my rifle and I was all alone out there. Uh, how far walk from the road? How far were you from your camp? Well, the, the whole key was to get it to the water. Cause I had a canoe that I had also left up there with the airplane the year before. And it so was going to be able to water. I could paddle would, the, the canoe over. It was probably straight across the water. It was maybe half a mile. Mm -hmm. um, and, but the 600 yards down to the lake was the problem. And, you know, in subsequent years, I typically did not shoot moose that far from the lake. <laughs> but that first one, um, I had quite a job. I also didn't have a sled. Uh, I, I turned after moving that moose i realized uh sled is a very helpful tool and i did you I just carry it moose without, without or, a sled did you just drag it or what what did you do oh there was no chance of drag no there's no chance of dragging a whole moose uh i had actually read a lot about butchering moose and moving moose around so i wasn't totally clueless but it was all theory and i had to put it into practice so just cutting it up was the first challenge and uh a variety of things happened um, I actually got charged by another moose while I, just before I started butchering it. I wrote, I wrote that story. It's on Facebook in the notes section if you want to read that one. But um, I don't want to diverge too much. The main, the main challenge, though, was getting it down to the lake. So I cut it up into 10 pieces. You know, it's 10 or 11 pieces is usually uh, 
you have 10 or 11 loads to move a moose by yourself without any equipment. It, it always, it always ends up taking me at least 10 loads, I think, to move a moose. Um, even if I'm dragging them in a sled, but it took me, you know, it was totally dark by the time I got this moose cut up is the middle of the night. I don't know what time it was. I didn't even have a watch then. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't have a calendar. Um, I kept track of the date just by marking each day. And, you know, I knew basically what time of day it was by where the sun was, but can I ask something when, when you were butchering it for the first time, you said you only, you just had theoretical knowledge of it. In hindsight, was was there anything that you did incorrectly that like you kind of screwed up on that first moose, or did you get kind of lucky that you did it the right way? Well, it didn't turn out too badly. I was able to salvage all the meat, but I definitely don't butcher moose in that way now. You know, I mean, I've refined my techniques a lot. <laughs> how many moose? How many moose have you shot, Glenn? Um, I think fifteen moose. 14 or 15. And they're, and they're typically, they're typically a thousand, 1200 pounds, something like that. I would say so. I've never been able to weigh a moose, you know, in one piece, right, but, but just ballpark. Biologists, they're, not, they're not 500 and they're not. Yeah. Yeah. Biologists say a, a, a big moose up here can weigh 1600 pounds, a real big one. Um, yeah. You know, I've shot some that are pretty darn big and I'm, I'm sure they're, they're getting in that range, 12, 13, 1400 pounds, maybe. I've seen some snowmobiling. Uh, up there and i wouldn't want to mess with them i know that much i was glad i was on a snowmobile get the hell away from them yeah they're big animals yeah they're they're really how'd you you ever go how'd you ever go from hanging out in the brooks range and shooting moose and ducks and fish and you know living this hunter guy how the hell you wind up on a tv show (laughs) uh yeah that took a few years to organize too um basically uh, after living out there for a while, I realized that, hey, this is a very unique thing in this day and age to be living this way. And I you know, learned a lot and was getting uh, to a point where I felt it was time to start sharing this with people. You know, I mean, what good did all this knowledge that I was gathering and all these experiences that I was having do if I didn't share it with people? So I wanted to find a way to do that. And I was thinking along the lines of making some type of documentary independent film and for a few years of course i spent most of my time out in the woods i didn't know anything about filmmaking but when i would come to fairbanks i would seek people out and try to make connections and there were some people i i talked to uh that were interested but we we never put it together i mean for one thing it's a very expensive place to try and film you know the logistically and whatnot you gotta put quite a bit of money into it and that was one obstacle to getting somebody out there to actually work with me. Um, but in the process of making these connections, uh, at, at one point I was handed an email address by somebody and uh, they said, Hey, you should get in touch with this guy. He, he's looking for somebody like you. And I was just about to walk back out to the Brooks range that year. And I sent an email off just before I left. And I said, Hey, um, I, I've got a satellite telephone which is for emergencies. And I, you know, it's not turned on most of the time, but I check messages every once in a while. This is the one way that you can get in touch with me. Uh, I put that in the email. And by that time I, I had gotten this Iridium phone. So I walked back out there and I was by myself that winter. Um, I think I sent that email in August and 
I never got any message on the satellite phone. I had sent a lot of emails to different people. I kind of forgot about that. I wasn't even thinking about it anymore. In April, I picked up that phone one day and checked for any messages that had come in. And sure enough, there was a message from that person that I had sent months and months before the email. And uh, they wanted me to call them up. So we started talking. It was, it was a TV producer in LA. And uh, we spoke every day for a couple of weeks. And the executive producer of the show flew all the way from LA up there to meet me. And that's, that's when we started filming. Uh, I think a few weeks after that, maybe a month after that we were filming. So uh, once I made that connection, it just happened really fast because they already had the show going. The show had already been in production for a, a whole season. Actually at the time that, that I got involved in it, the first episode was premiering right then. I haven't watched, you know, I've, I've probably watched, I don't know if I've watched 25 or something like that episode. I didn't watch it all the time, but whenever you were on and, you know, I happened to catch it, of course I was interested in it and it covered, you know, a lot of the same sorts of stuff over the years. And it was, it was interesting. Uh, one thing I never really figured out was you're, you're living this dangerous lifestyle, right? You're up there many times by yourself. I'm sure not always, but many times by yourself. And, you know, I've spent enough time outdoors that, you know, you twist an ankle, you, you wreck your knee, uh, whatever. How'd you, heal, how'd you handle getting hurt? You had to get hurt sometimes. And, you know, that whole side of things. Well, I got hurt moving that first moose. <laughs> I'm sure you did. I, I did get it all down to the water and it took me a couple of days, but I got it all back to my camp. And I then proceeded to lay down in my bed for five days, unable to move because I'd hurt my back so bad. Um, but that was really the biggest danger uh, out there was if I can't walk home, I'm screwed. So I had to make sure I didn't mess up and break my leg when I was up on a mountain or something like that. You know, that was that was always the biggest danger. Because were there really, ever times I, that you did that you got you got hurt and you know, you kind of, I've had learned how to, you learned how to skin a moose. You learned how to shoot. You learned how to hunt. How'd you learn how to kind of take care of yourself in the medical side of it? Bush medicine. I mean, you had to have an infected tooth. You had to have, uh, you know, some sorts of problems like every human being ever has had. There's a book called medicine for mountaineering and it was one of only a couple dozen books that I had up there at the camp. Well, that book, if you pick it up, Tom, you got to be real careful because I've used it so much that half the pages will fall right out on the floor when you pick it up. <laughs> but yeah, I, I studied that one pretty well. And, you know, most of the time I stayed very, very healthy, but there have been a few times when I had problems. And in the, in the early years, when I first went out there, I didn't have a satellite phone. I didn't have a way to communicate other than I always had a little uh, two-way radio that I could, in an emergency, I could wait for a plane to fly over. And um, I never had an emergency where I used it that way, but there was uh, a time, a, few, a couple times where I got messages out in the early years that I was still alive just so people knew I was okay by calling a plane. I remember one time, I hadn't talked to anybody in a couple months and I wanted to, to let my family know that everything was going okay. And I was alive out there. And 
I made a plan. Okay, next jet that flies over, I'm going to call them up and get a message out. And, you know, they draw the tracks up differently every day, depending on the upper level winds. And lo and behold, uh, I didn't hear a jet go over for like three days. Uh, it was also bad weather. When it's windy, you don't hear. If it's cloudy, you don't see the contrail. So I, I couldn't call anybody for a few days. And then one day I heard this jet and you have to be fast because, you know, they're going 500 miles an hour. You don't have long to talk with this little radio that's not transmitting that powerful. And I get on there and I'm like, uh, hey, anybody on 121.5, man on the ground, got to talk to you. And uh, sure enough, the guy answers and he, it's uh, American Airlines and he's uh, on his way to uh, Tokyo from from Newark. And uh, I said, hey, I'm down here on the ground by myself in the middle of nowhere. I got to get a message out. Can you help me and relay a message to Anchorage Center? And he said, sure, I'll help you out. I give him the phone number in Vermont. I said, just call him up and tell him I'm doing okay, but I'm not going to be out on time, you know, because I had had a date that I knew I wasn't going to make to get back to the road. He talked to Anchorage Center. He said, they're making the call for you. He said, good luck to you. (laughs) That's funny. One of the questions. What was the longest? What was the longest time? You spent completely by yourself out there. Like, you know, was it uh, a month? Was it six months that, that you were all by yourself? Four and a half months. How, how, what was that like? <laughs> what was that like? I mean, you know, some people go crazy when they're by themselves. Some people love it when they're by themselves. What was that like? It was a challenge psychologically. The, the very first time I went out there, I was four months by myself. And I really liked it because I had planned it and I wanted to do it and I knew it wasn't going to be easy, but I just wanted to see what's it going to be like to be four months by myself. Now, the next time that happened was quite a few years later and it was different circumstances. Um, You know, I'd split up with my wife and I wanted to be out there. I didn't really want to be out there alone, but it was, you know, go alone or don't go this year. I decided to go out alone. And, and that time I went for four and a half months without seeing a single person. Then I saw one person. And then I went like another month without seeing anybody. And it was, it was hard. It, it was like, I, you know, I, I really got to get out of here. Well, you know, well, I'm still young enough to find a girlfriend because <laughs> I just didn't want to keep sitting out there alone like that forever. But uh, yeah, it's. Were you talking to yourself? Like, are you not not speaking loud, but, uh, you, you have to, you know, stay organized, stay very methodical, you know, have, have a good routine. Um, I mean, most of the time I'd be pretty upbeat and, and, and happy because there's so much stuff going on. I mean, one thing I always say about it, it's a little bit like being in solitary confinement, but I'm not locked up in a box. I mean, I can run all over the mountains. I can see beautiful animals. I can, you know, have a lot of adventures. It's exciting. So a lot of people, I, when I when I would feel down, that's what I'd think about. I'd be like, hey, there's a lot of guys locked up in concrete boxes today that haven't seen anybody in four months. <laughs> yeah. I'm out here in the woods. I mean, this is great. You know, I, I cheer myself up by thinking about that. But has that affected you at all in the sense of like, I mean, socially, you, you de-socialized yourself for a period of time. And now that you're back, you know, you're living in town and, and around people a lot. Does that ever, is it ever difficult for you to be around people regularly and just kind of need you need to be able to go back to that place or. No, I, 
I mean, I, I tend to be a bit introverted. So, you know, I, I recharge by spending time alone, but I only need a couple hours alone. I don't need four months alone. Yeah, that's a, a bit of a stretch. <laughs> no, it's, it just makes you appreciate people more. I mean, when I have gone a long time without seeing anybody and then I see them, I mean, it's, it's awesome. You know, you talk to people and uh, it's, um, I, I can remember coming into town, going over to the grocery store and just, just like, starting up conversations with people at random and, and be like, just so appreciative to have people around to talk to and really happy. I mean, I, well, there's there are millions and millions of people going through that right now with this pandemic, right? My dad is an example of one, right? I mean, he's yeah. very afraid. He's 81 uh, years old and he's very afraid of getting a coronavirus. My mom is another one, you know, she's in a memory care facility, she's 83 and no one can go visit her. Right. So there's millions and millions of people that are going through that, you know, maybe not to the quite at the extreme that you went through it, but it'll be very interesting to see how people come out the other side. But I know I can say in the case of my dad, for example, I mean, he's craving getting this vaccine really primarily so that he can engage with other people, you know, yeah. engage with other people. Well, it's important. I mean, humans are are the most social animal. You know, we we really need that interaction we depend on each other so much for everything all the time and if you can't see people face to face and and really interact with people it, it's stressful it's hard on on, on almost everybody can we go back to the moose thing just for one second because i was <laughs> i was curious i mean we got to the dragging of the moose and to the you being laid up for five days but you hadn't eaten real well in a long time what like what what's the first step once you get that mood like what are you eating first what are you looking forward to um and are you just eating moose for like the next six months for every meal like does that get old at all or i i was just curious about the the consumption of that that moose tasted so good i tell you adam <laughs> it was like the best food I'd ever eaten. It was just incredible. I, I remember just, it was like delicacies. I was just experimenting. I was going through everything. I'd have some heart. I'd have some liver. I ate a lot of liver from that one. Usually the livers aren't good in a moose at that time of year in the bull moose, but that liver was actually pretty good. And I ate a lot of liver. But uh, You, you got to eat a lot of the fat, right? Cause you're basically in ketosis. Well, um, the, you'll you'll be in ketosis eating a lot of fat i mean that's that's normal the fat doesn't cure that but the um you do have to eat a lot of fat you can't just you can't eat too much protein um actually to tell you the truth i've experimented with a ketogenic diet uh recently just in the last year just just out of curiosity and i don't think i was in ketosis most of the time because i think that i was probably uh, eating enough protein that my body was actually converting that. They call it uh, glucogenesis where yeah. you can actually make glucogen, I guess, from the protein. So I, I think I was probably in that kind of condition more than ketosis because I was eating um, more protein than the amount that you can eat and maintain ketosis. You probably have to eat, you know, 80 or 90% of your calories from fat. I mean, a real strict ketogenic diet, you're eating a lot of your calories from fat. Out there, I was probably eating closer to something like 70% of my calories from fast, 75%. And I don't think that I was really in ketosis now that I've experimented with different 
diets where I was measuring it very carefully, the, the, the macronutrients. But, you know, like they say, for example, the, the traditional Eskimo diet, they were actually not in ketosis. It was not a ketogenic diet, but they didn't eat carbohydrates in some areas, some, some places um, up in Northwest Territories, people were eating mainly just seals in the wintertime for months. And Is that an adjustment probably- though? Like to be eating large amounts of fat like that? Like, cause it's, it's texturally, it's very different than like kind of the modern staple diet or Western diet. And like, I mean, I've seen some of the video. I mean, at one point you eat, you're eating the fat behind the eyeballs on uh, a caribou, I think. And like, did it take you a while to become adjusted to that? Or was it just like you hadn't eaten anything game on? It didn't take me any time to adjust. <laughs> it, it was just delicious. I, I mean, I just remember that first moose thinking, this is just the best food in the world. This is incredible. It just tasted so good. Did you and, get I mean, sick it is, of it when though? You think about it, I mean, a tenderloin from a moose, it's like this big around and this long. And, you know, I think, Jesus, if I was in the store, I'd have to pay $200, $300 for this. <laughs> this is because it's organic too. That's the other thing. It's like the best meat you could imagine getting, you know, and I could just eat tenderloin all day out there if I wanted to. Um, so it, it really, it wasn't hard for me to adjust, but everybody's different. I mean, I know for some people eating a high meat diet would not be suitable at all. For me, it actually it worked out well eating a high meat and fat diet. Uh, and I always had some vegetables. I shouldn't say always, but usually I had some vegetables. Um, I always picked as many berries as I could in the fall. And uh, I'd also even dig roots in the fall. And I'd also, not that there, there are very many out there. The problem is the roots are real small out there. So you can't, it's not like you're digging big carrots out of the ground. You're digging stuff the size of your pinky out of the ground. Um, and also in the springtime, the leaves are really good. When they first come out, there are a lot of, there's just an abundance of leaves. So you can eat those. And then to preserve them, some years I would dry them and actually have this great big, you know, bag, like the size of a big pillowcase full of leaves going into the winter, or a couple of those bags and just sprinkle a few of those in a, in a dish that was kind of like a stew or something so that I'd have a little bit of vegetable food. Huh. Might eat, you know, a cup of berries a day. I, I, I remember um, often taking cranberries uh, back in, in those days and I'd, I'd have cranberries most of the winter, but I could only eat maybe a cup of them a day to string them out over the winter. And I just, in the evening, they'd be outside frozen. I'd take in some of these cranberries and, and just pour melted moose fat all over them. As soon as the hot moose fat hit the berries, it would just solidify and it would be, that was like my dessert. It was great, you know. One thing I have to say is that your taste buds change. So um, not having anything that you would consider really sweet, things started to taste sweet that other people wouldn't think of as sweet. There's one little berry out there called the crowberry, this little black berry. And if you ate one, you wouldn't say it was sweet. But to me, it tasted sweet. I, I would mix in some crowberries with the cranberries and wow, that tastes sweet. You know, that was the sweetest thing I had sometimes for months. That's crazy. I mean, I still don't like to eat refined sugar or really sweet food, um, but you adjust. You adjust. I can remember being so well adjusted to a natural diet and really getting into it. And by natural, I mean a local diet, what I could get right there. That one time a state trooper stopped in the middle of winter in a little ski plane just to check on me there. 
I was living with Sylvia at the time and he had brought some fruit, like some bananas and oranges. And I didn't eat a single one. When he left them just as a little gift to us, I told Sylvia, Hey, you can have them. I don't have any appetite for them. And I'd been all winter with no fresh fruits or vegetables other than these little frozen berries, but I had no, it just seemed so foreign. Like I don't really want to eat an orange or banana. I didn't didn't even touch it. That's crazy. Well, um, I, I asked you to bring a couple stories today and I, we're about an hour and a half in right now. I want to be respectful of everybody's time. Um, my dad actually has a, a decent story of you coming to visit him at Harvard. And I, I want, we alluded to it a little bit earlier, but dad, do you want to talk that at all? Sure. So, uh, I was going to Harvard business school. And Michelle and I, and we had two kids at the time. Adam, you were just a baby. And Kyle was about probably three or something like that. And we were living there. And Glenn uh, called me up and said, hey, he says, uh, I always wanted to know what it's like to go to Harvard. I'm thinking of going. And uh, maybe I can come down. Now, you know, I remember when I uh, thought about going to Harvard Business School, you know, a lot of stress, right? So you got to, first you got to think about it. Then you got to apply and, you know, there's very unlikely you're going to get in. You happen to get in and you're admitted. And then you got to worry about, oh, crap, you know, you got to you got to pay for it. Right. And it's very expensive. And then you got all the stress of going there. You got exams and grades and all that sort of shit. And, you know, it's a high stress deal. Glenn has always lived a low overhead life. He finds much simpler ways of accomplishing goals than anybody else I know. So his idea of going to Harvard was call up his cousin and come and crash on the couch and just walk in the frickin' front door of a classroom and sit there and say, hey, this might be interesting. Maybe I should just learn. And so he came and he stayed on our couch. That didn't cost anything. And he didn't go through any application that I was aware of. He somehow found out where the philosophy or physics or whatever it was he was interested in where that class was going to be held. And he just walked in like all the other students and sat there and learned and didn't have any stress of exams or homework or anything. He could learn what he wanted. If it wasn't interesting, he'd go down to the next building and go to a different class. And it was like, that's a lot easier way of going to Harvard (laughs) than the way I chose to go. Uh, How do you remember it, Glenn? Yeah, that was pretty much it, Tom. Which it sounds funny as hell now, but at the time it seemed totally natural to me. I I didn't just go to Harvard that way. I went to Columbia that way. I, I went to Yale. I went to Oxford that way, Tom. I, 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 I discovered this little trick. You could go to any class you want. All you had to do is tell them you were a prospective student checking out the place. So this was a reoccurring thing. I thought this was yeah, just yeah. a one-time deal. I think. That trip to Harvard, if I remember right, that might have been the first time I pulled that off at an Ivy League school, but (laughs) I went to the University of Chicago that way. (laughs) What were you, what were you studying? Like, what were you interested in typically? uh, Well, I did for a while think that I might actually enroll. And um, I took my SATs there when I was, uh, I think I was 21 years old or something. I got this idea, hey, maybe I'll go to, go to college. Um. A couple of classes I, I took for the entire semester. I took uh, two philosophy classes, um, but not at Harvard. But 
basically, yeah, I was kind of preparing. Like I thought, hey, maybe I'd like to go to go to university. And um, I remember calling up Oxford. You know, I was in Vermont, and I was I called up Oxford and said, hey, I'd like to apply. You know, to go to school at Oxford and whatnot. And then and I'd go to interviews. You know, I'd go to admissions and stuff. And um, but then that that plan kind of fizzled out. It was actually when I went to Oxford, I I was staying in London, and I thought, man. I'm just having more. I, I like London more than Oxford. <laughs> I was having a better time down in London, meeting people there and whatnot. So it, it, it all kind of fizzled out. That was before I got into the world traveling so much, actually. How do you do on your SATs? Um, I got 1,400. It's so pretty good right. for not I mean, being I did, a big I fan. I well of... enough that, that potentially I could have gotten into a good school, you know. Um, you know, I studied for the SATs. One thing I did with school is, is kind of the same way I operate with money is like, I'll go a long time and I won't worry about it, but then I'll get real serious about it for a short time and catch up. <laughs> so, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't studied a lot of high school math. Um, and I decided I want to take my SAT. And so I just, got totally into math for a few months. I just, you know, studied all the, you know, I'd never done algebra before and I just, you know, studied everything I, I needed there to take the SAT and, and it worked. I was able to usually condense things down. Um, you know, I mean, I, I might go for four or five years without making any money. As long as I could make some money in the next couple of years or the couple of years before that, <laughs> so, you know, I'd be, I would, I wouldn't worry about it in between. So that was one of my questions I had for you because um, this money piece is it's something that we haven't really touched on this entire time, but it's kind of relevant to everything here. Um, like, how do you view money personally? And like, when was the last time you had kind of a, a day job? Well, I view money as a very, very useful invention. I mean, it, uh, it certainly facilitates uh, economic transactions. You don't get to, you know, $65,000 per capita GDP on a barter economy. So I think money's great, but I also think that depending on what you want to accomplish, it can be almost useless. You know, I mean, it's not going to buy you immortality. It's not going to buy you love. It's not going to buy you anything if you're 200 miles from the nearest town and you got nobody to exchange it with. So there've been times in my life where um, money was really helpful. And there've been times where it served no purpose at all. For example, I can remember flying out to my camp, chartering a flight to get out there. And I might've had uh, after paying for the flight, a hundred dollars left in my pocket and uh, sitting it on the shelf there in my little shack and a year later, I still had that $100 sitting there. There was nothing to buy during that year. Um, there was nothing I could use it for. It was totally useless. Fire starter would have been about the only thing that you could have done with it. And the only difference when I came back to town, it was only worth $98 instead of $100. But basically, in that environment, uh, money really didn't help much. But of course, when you're embedded in the modern economy, like I am right now, it's one of the most useful 
things that you can have. So, so are you in your compression stage right now in terms of finances where you're, you're back to trying to <laughs> back to study in algebra? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, really making TV was very helpful in terms of financing some things that I wanted to do uh, that I didn't have the money for. Like for instance, getting back into flying. I never would have been able to afford to get into flying again if it hadn't been for making television for, you know, six and a half years. I made a lot of TV. I was in 85 episodes of, of the show. And um, I was very fortunate in that most reality TV shows go one season. Uh, they're lucky if they get two seasons. Uh, Life Below Zero did fantastic. Is the number two series on the network for years. It was, uh, you know, it's a big international success too. It's been sold all over the world. So that was very helpful. Um, but no, right now, I mean, uh, the, the, in the last year, I, I've been more uh, more spending money than making it, but just, um, you know, investing in things that, that have some value. I mean, I'm not, I, I don't like, one, one thing, I don't really like uh, to surround myself with too many material possessions. So I, I use money in pretty efficient Low ways. overhead, low overhead. Yeah. You know, my uncle Donnie, um, I remember one time when I was a teenager, I think it was just after his wife had left him and she had taken everything. I went over to his house and it was cleaned out. I mean, there was no bed. There was no furniture, no nothing. And I remember uh, Donnie still tells this story. Uh, I looked at him and I said, you know, someday I'd like to live in a house like this. It just seems so simple. (laughs) Nothing to have to deal with. And, uh, you know, some material possessions can be great, but they can, they also take your attention and you, we only got so much attention. We only got so much time. What do you really want to be focused on? So I tend to be very careful about what I acquire in terms of possessions. And so it's uh, based off of, um, stuff that you value more, like you're happy to have certain possessions that they serve a purpose. And if they, are a tool or useful to your life in some way, but not just to have things to have things. Right. Yeah. No, I, you know, um, just, I mean, I thought carefully about whether or not I actually want an airplane because that takes a considerable amount of time to maintain and, and focus on. And, uh, but I decided in that case I did, but, you know, I'm very careful about, uh, you know, what I do with money, you know, I'd, I'd rather question. I got a question for you, Glenn. So you've had this remarkable, let's call it first half of your life, right? I mean, unbelievable first half of your life. Uh, you, you've had experiences that very few people ever get a chance to do, see the whole world. You've lived, you know, very unique uh, lifestyle that was your choice. You've met a million people. You've learned a million different things that most people, you know, really don't know that much about butchering and moose, right? Uh, not a lot of people, some people do, but not a lot of people. Uh, but you also are very learned in, you know, many other subjects that we didn't talk about, right. Uh, that you get interested in philosophy or art or, you know, whatever, whatever the subject is, you go, you go deep in whether it's rock climbing, whether it's aviation, whether it's hunting, whether it's whatever you, you love to learn. And and that's one of the things that I've always appreciated. So you're 51 and you've had this great, you know, first part of your life, whatever it is, half, two thirds, who knows? We don't, tomorrow's not guaranteed. What about the future? What's the future look like for you? When you're six feet under, what, 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 
what what happens between now and then? You got a family now. You're remarried. You got a family, kids. It's a little different than it was when you're in your twenties, when it was mainly about Glenn. What what what's the future look like? Family is very important to me. That's something you know. I mean, my oldest now. I've got four kids. My oldest is uh, fourteen years old. So for quite a while, I have actually been focused on family. That's that's maybe a little bit of a misimpression that people who only know me from television would would have uh, because we didn't include the family in the show much at the very end. They were in a little bit, but uh, you know, even during the years when I was in the bush, most of the time my family was with me and uh, that's, that's a huge part of my life. But in terms of um, the wider picture with society, I mean, teaching, sharing the things I've learned with people is really important. You know, I'm working right now on, developing another television show, which I mean, it may or may not come to fruition, but I want to continue to share with people the things I've learned. And really for me on Life Below Zero, I mean, I don't know if you got this impression, but uh, some people mentioned it to me and I'm glad the message got through is when I was thinking up these stories that I wanted to share, um, because I came up with the ideas, you know, for most all those episodes, I made 85 episodes and um in order to work within that format, of course, it had to be about uh, subsistence type of activity most of the time. It had to be, you know, there was a lot of practical stuff there. But I was always trying to convey a deeper message at the same time, too. I mean, some of those stories are about the value of patience, maybe, and, and sticking with something in order to achieve your goal. Or some of those stories are just trying to um, convey how wondrous the world is and how important it is to appreciate it. Uh, so I was always trying to get across deeper messages and I'm, I'm still trying to do that, you know, in, in the plans I have for the future is really just trying to inspire people, enlighten people a little bit, maybe entertain them some at the same time. Yeah. One thing, the, the message I always, the message I always took away from the show and from you in general, just being part of your family. I mean, we wouldn't see each other all that often, but was life is short, live the life you want. Don't do what everybody else says. Use your own brain and don't be afraid to try shit. Uh, life can be pretty cool. That was always the message I took from you, regardless of whether it was when you were, you bit me when you were a little kid or when you were, uh, you know, fourth grade and your folks were trying to get you to go to school. And you said to hell with that, or you're going to the library or you're living in a teepee or you're out of the Brooks Ranch. Life is short. Don't do what everybody else says. Live your life the way you want to live it. And maybe that's up on the Brooks Range. Maybe that's, you know, in a more traditional life. But that was always the message I took. And you told that story very, very well through the show and through the way you've lived your whole life. Yeah, it's it's a shame to see people that get stuck in a rut or maybe just don't realize that you can do a lot of the things that you want to do uh, if you apply yourself properly, it's not always easy. And sometimes it takes a lot of time. It took me seven years just to move out to the Brooks range. Once I decided I wanted to do it. Yeah. But, but you, there are a lot of opportunities and a lot of possibilities in life. If you take the right approach, but you make it look so effortless too. Like you, the, the way you go about your business is just so impressive to me. Like you just your composure and you, the way you kind of think and, and um, handle situations, I, I find it like you make it look really cool. And that that's not necessarily always a uh, natural t- uh, 
trait of people. And I don't know if that's because you, I mean, you've taken sort of big risks in life where, you know, the traditional path is, it's pretty safe, you know, like you, it, most people feel pretty comfortable if they have a 401k and most people feel pretty comfortable if they know when they have to be at work one day and when they leave and you haven't had a lot of that. And it's impressive to see somebody do that with the amount of confidence. Like wh- where do you, where did this confidence come from to do this stuff? Was it just other people have been able to do it? So you should be able to do it. Or do you think you've just had it throughout your whole life? Well, I think that um, I'm not always completely confident that I'm going to be able to pull off what I'm doing, but I, I have a fear of letting things pass by, uh, of basically looking back on life and thinking, ah, oh, damn, I didn't really do what I wanted to do. I didn't really accomplish what I wanted to accomplish or contribute what I wanted to contribute. I just feel like, yeah, it's it's not a dress rehearsal. This is a real thing. And you gotta, you gotta seize the opportunity. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's probably that fear in the back of my mind, even subconsciously of letting things slip by that motivates me more than anything, I suppose. Yeah. That's interesting. All right. Well, we're at like one forty right now got a couple stories left um was there any specific story that you wanted to tell or my dad also has the the motorcycle story if you want to have him do that as well <laughs> why don't you tell the motorcycle story tom i've been talking a lot let's let's well this. Well, well i mean this goes back to this idea of doing things differently so you know everybody's got a dream of uh, you know, vacation, uh, get away. You're stuck in your nine to five job and you get two weeks vacation a year and you hoard it. So Glenn wanted to see, uh, the country on a motorcycle and you know, that's expensive, right? You got to have a motorcycle. You got to take the time off from work, blah, blah, blah. Again, he took a very non-traditional kind of low overhead way of doing that. And he, uh, uh, went over to his dad's his dad had a motorcycle. Hey, can I borrow your motorcycle? Sure. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go for a little ride. Okay. Where are you going? Well, I'll go around uh, North America. <laughs> so he left Vermont with, I don't know, 10 bucks in his pocket or something like that. And, uh, went to the West coast and, you know, stayed on the side of the road, got odd jobs, you know, cleaning somebody's gas station in exchange for gas, staying in a homeless shelter, whatever. <laughs> and uh staying with people along the road so we're in uh louisville kentucky my wife and i and uh are at the time two little kids and and i'm working at a very traditional job i'm working for ge i'm a plant manager at a place that makes appliances we were making stoves and michelle's staying at home with two little kids i mean just almost a polar opposite of what glenn's doing riding around you know the whole north america and and we're, you know, going to work every day and coming home and feeding the kids. So I uh, get a call one day. Hey, Tommy, how you doing? Good, good, Glenn. What's up? Oh, you know, I'm on this. Well, I guess I heard something about that. Hey, uh, how about I come uh, I come stay with you guys? I'm coming through Louisville, and I could just stop in to see you. I said, well, when are you thinking? He says, well, Tuesday. I said, oh, Tuesday, terrific. I said, you know, Tuesday would be great, Glenn, except we got a little Tuesday's kind of a tough day for us. A uh, couple things going on. I said, you know, it happened to be uh, November 4th was the day. It was that Tuesday. 
and uh, uh, a couple things going on. One, we've been building a house and, you know, from scratch. And Tuesday actually is moving day. Tuesday's the day that the moving trucks, all the boxes and shit show up. And we got to unload our house and uh, we got two little kids and it's also Kyle's birthday. It's uh, our oldest son's birthday. He turns three. And so, you know, we got to unload boxes. It's really not a great time for house guests. I'm sure Michelle wouldn't. No, hey, look, I'll be no problem at all. I, no, I'll low overhead. I'll just sleep on the floor. You won't even know I'm there. Nah, Glenn, you know, it's really not that great at time. I really don't think it's a good idea. He said, I'll see you around uh, five o'clock. And so I go home and I tell Michelle, hey, you know, Glenn's, what the hell are you talking about? Somebody's coming to us. Sure enough, it all works out that way. The moving trucks show up, the boxes are everywhere. And about five o'clock, here comes Glenn on a motorcycle. And it's like, I can't believe he really came, but he did. And so he comes in and like he said, he slept on the floor. And at the time, Glenn, you know, very presentable on TV, but at the time he kind of had this a little bit more, you know, been on a motorcycle for weeks, months, I don't know how long, had sort of a Jesus look to him, okay, <laughs> long hair, and, you know, he only had maybe a couple of shirts and a pair of jeans or whatever in the backpack, and, hey, how about if I go to work with you? I've never been to a factory before. How does a factory work? Oh, sure, Glenn, that'll be great, going into GE, you know, pretty button-down sort of place, and I take Jesus into work with me, and he wanders around the factory, and I don't know. This is a pretty big factory, a million square feet. And, uh, there, I don't know. There's about 1,200 people working there. I'm running the place, and uh, hi, it's my cousin Glenn. And uh, <laughs> so Glenn hangs out, right? And Michelle's to me at night, like, when is he going to leave? Okay. And uh, I don't know. I don't know when he's going to leave. And I think it was a couple weeks, okay, of Glenn hanging out at the house and. We're trying to get unboxed. We got this house guest and, and little kids and everything. And and uh, finally, unusual event in November. It's getting on towards Thanksgiving now. And it snows in Louisville. Big snowstorm. Yeah, I remember. And Yeah, big snowstorm. And he's on a motorcycle. And uh, I overhear the phone call. He calls his dad and says, hey, dad, uh, I'm at Michelle and Tom's. And uh, I'm going to leave the motorcycle here for the winter. <laughs> Right. And I'm like, what the hell is this about? And Ronald, there's his dad. Ronald said, no, Glenn, you figured out how to get the motorcycle away. You figure out how to get the motorcycle back. And Glenn had to do the one thing that Glenn hates to do more than anything in life. And that was to spend money. <laughs> Glenn had to rent a van and we had to somehow get this Honda Goldwing huge motorcycle into the back of the van. And he finally had to drive home from louisville with a motorcycle in the back that's my memory of it i might have missed some facts glenn but that yeah, was that's kind of my, my that was memory pretty, of your that was pretty pretty accurate the only thing i just noticed at the end you mentioned the honda goldwing it wasn't a honda goldwing the the my dad wouldn't let me take his honda goldwing the 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 deal was he he owned two motorcycles at the time he had a honda goldwing and then he had that smaller suzuki that was it wasn't really a touring bike oh, it was a suzuki oh okay. yeah it was a suzuki intruder i think it was yeah and uh yeah, so I had gone over to his house one day. And I had this idea, like, it'd be kind of cool to take a motorcycle trip. And I uh, convinced him that I could just borrow his Suzuki Intruder and go for a ride on the motorcycle around the country a little bit. And <laughs> I think I brought it back about three months later, three or four months later. <laughs> but I do remember that. I remember you that. you spend on that trip? What's that? How much did you spend on that trip? How much did the trip oh. cost you? 
Not very much. I, I, I had a lot of connections. I remember, you know, like you, I stayed with different people around and hopefully I didn't inconvenience them as much. <laughs> they weren't all right on moving day that I showed up, but you know, that's, I was in Seattle with friends. I had friends in Montana. I had friends in all different places that I stopped to visit friends and relatives all over the country. You know, people I'd known from when I was a kid when they were in college, then they were going, I remember visiting a girl in Boulder. She was going to school there and visiting, uh, another girl I knew was down in Los Angeles at the time. And was this just on like, you'd get their number and you'd call them though. Cause it, I mean, there was no internet and people's address. No, no, I used to have a little phone book. I actually, because uh, my connections were always real important to the way I lived that in those days. And I, I used to have, you know, a paper uh, book that I kept phone numbers in. That was like my most valuable possession everywhere I went. I mean, thank God I never lost that because yeah, it was before iPhones and internet. And I, I remember it was, it was pretty nice. I had like a leather zippered case and it was pretty thick and I had numbers in there from all over the world. And I should have saved that thing just for the hell of it. But, (laughs) oh yeah, there was names and numbers written in foreign languages. I didn't even understand in that little book. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, Glenn, I want to say thanks so much for you coming on today. Um, just one last bonus question. I was curious, uh, what was Rogan like off air? Was he a pretty cool uh, guy? Yeah, we only talked for maybe 15 minutes off air. Um, he was he was really friendly. Nice. He actually invited me to go to uh, the comedy store that night. He was he was put on comedy. I was exhausted. I, I'd only slept three hours the night before, and I just flown down there to L.A. from Alaska, and I, I turned him down on that because I had to also get a flight at, like, 4 o'clock in the morning the next morning to get back home. Oh, geez. But, um, yeah, he was he was a real nice guy. And uh, I have to say, just the whole experience of doing the show, uh, the way they handled it, um, with me getting in touch with them, it was just so efficient, and they were so polite and and helpful and followed through on everything. I, I had a perfect experience dealing with the Joe Rogan show. Is there anything um, like if people are interested in knowing more about you or following you or, or like, do you have a, a website or Instagram or where can people kind of know more about Glenn from? Yeah, I'm all modern now. So I got uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, I really uh, mostly am active on Facebook and Instagram is where, you know, if people want to ask me questions or anything where I might uh, have a chance to get back to them, that'd be the place to go. Um, Yeah. I really uh, am thankful for a lot of these as as primitive as I've chosen to live at times in my life, these modern, uh, modern conveniences we have now and and the communication, it's amazing. I mean, this is nuts that we can do this right now. I mean, I thought I was going to have to fly up to see you in person to do this. So thank God for Zoom. It's pretty awesome. I remember, um, I remember talking to you about that. Uh, You know, you were talking about coming up and well, with COVID and everything, it sure is awesome that that we have uh, the ability to communicate like this. Yeah. And it's been, I mean, I'm, I'm blown away for where you're at. I haven't had any uh, issues video or audio right now on on this recording so that's it's not bad <laughs> i've got top-notch internet connection here uh it really is great yeah dad any last questions or no just great seeing you and thanks for doing this very kind of you to to share your time and uh you get down this way either scottsdale or vermont uh let's get together 
Yeah, I'll make sure not to come on moving day. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're ever in Seattle, too, hit me up. Um, would love to. We don't have the comedy store, but we got Laughs Comedy Club, and I'd love to have you out and see me perform sometime. Yeah. And Tom, you know, I just want to thank you for accommodating me over the years. I want to apologize for biting you when I was a kid. I had no memory of it. I don't know what was going on. <laughs> but uh, really, those were those are great memories I have of visiting you at Harvard and visiting you in Louisville. I, I remember the plant there perfectly. I remember grilling you with questions about how it worked and everything. And you hadn't been there long. So uh, I remember no. you tell, telling me sometimes I was like, what's going on right now? You know, what are these people doing? You said, hey, I don't know. I don't. I, you know, you weren't sure of everything that was going on that I was asking you about, but right. I had a lot of fun there. And, uh, yeah, it was amazing to see where, where kitchen range comes from, and how it gets made. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks very much, Glenn. It's great seeing you. And, uh, if you ever want to come back on, you're always welcome. It was great having you on the podcast. It was great doing it, Adam. Good luck with the podcast. Good luck with your comedy. And I hope to, uh, Talk to you again before too long. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Thanks again for listening, everybody. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to share this podcast with a friend and to rate and subscribe to us. Also, please don't forget to follow us on Instagram at FNFpod. We're going to leave you with Jaga. I just make the waves, I don't write them. I can hear the lyrics in my spirit as I write them. Why you want to walk and talk just like them? I can't get caught up in all the hype and the excitement I just make the waves, I don't write them I can hear the lyrics in my spirit as I write them Why you wanna walk and talk just like them? I can't get caught up in all the hype and the excitement Welcome to my wave pool, my wave pool 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 Welcome to my wave pool, my wave pool. 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 Welcome to my pool, so.